And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, March 28th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, there's a quick way to settle EEO disputes, but few agencies try it. Plus, USAID revamps the way it engages with overseas development partners. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Department of Veterans Affairs Electronic Health Records Project has critics in Congress. Top Republicans on the House VA Committee have introduced bills that would either postpone future installations or simply end the multi-billion dollar contract with Oracle Corporation and its subsidiary Cerner. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the chairman of the House VA Committee, Illinois Republican Mike Bost. Those incidents have occurred because the system itself either dropped at possible appointment that was vitally important for them to receive and or the wrong drugs and or delayed their care, which then caused them not to be able to be cured because of the delay of care. So it's one issue like this after another that we've noticed. Now, remember, those are incidents where you had fatalities, but you also got to realize that the system itself has caused all kinds of trouble with our veterans trying to receive care, confusion for appointments, wrong drugs being sent, no drugs being sent after the prescription is out there, and not counting the fact of what it does to the employees. Our main focus is definitely our veterans and making sure that they receive the health care that they deserve on time the way they need to. There's too many flaws in the system by itself, but when you throw uh, an electronic health record system in there that has failed over and over and over again, then the danger to our veterans is out there. The frustration of our employees and our doctors are out there. And the fact that this has just been kind of kicked around, and this has been five years of doing this, there needs to be an accountability to Cerner Oracle to make sure that there is some goal set so that we know that we can get through this. Now, you know, and I know that there are systems out there that are electronic systems, and mistakes happen with the systems, okay? But when you look at the old system in comparison to this one, I think the number is 10 times more instances than the existing system. Right. And we'll get into the way forward here in a moment. Just in terms of outstanding questions that you have for the VA in terms of not just these fatal incidents, but this larger population of incidents that have compromised patient care. What are some of those questions that you're still waiting to hear back from the VA on? What are you looking to learn more about in this instance? Well, the most important thing is just to make sure that we're delivering health care to our veterans right and correctly, that we can track exactly what's going on, that when a doctor gives an order that needs to be done, or an exam that needs to be done, or a prescription that needs to be done, that they're hitting correctly, and that you don't have multiple shutdowns. The loss of work days and or the ability to keep records clear, there's a whole list of things that need to be done because we're talking about people's lives and their health records. So the answers that we're getting or trying to get is what is the long-term goal? What are the matrix that are put in place to make sure that it comes to an operating system that not everybody is afraid that they're going to lose important information and or lose, of all things, our veterans' lives because an electronic system isn't working correctly? The questions we're asking are, when do you meet the mark 
and not constantly have us hearing, oh, boy, well, that, that broke down again, but we're going to work on that, or that broke down again, or we're going to work on that. And, and, and it is every time we turn up to a go live, it, it is every facility that we started this in. Right. And to that point, go lives are supposed to resume in uh, June of this year, I believe. At this point, it's kind of the question in everyone's mind whether those go lives in Saginaw, Michigan and onwards will proceed as scheduled. What would you need to see from the EHR and from the VA, you know, upcoming deadline here to feel confident that that go live is the right call and the right decision? The problems that have existed, that they would show how they've cured those problems in the existing five facilities so that the people that operate those systems feel comfortable, that they feel comfortable, that they, as the medical experts, know and understand that the quality of care will be delivered to our veterans. It will be delivered promptly. It'll be delivered safely, and the records will be kept so we know and understand that they're receiving the best possible health care. Because if you can't track it through their records, then it doesn't get done, and that's how we lose lives. I know that subcommittee chairman Matt Rosedale has uh, been adamant that at this point, of course, the VA is a tale of two EHRs. We're looking at Oracle Surter and the legacy EHR Vista. Subcommittee chairman Rosendale in recent hearings has been pretty clear that if things don't proceed well with the Oracle Cerner EHR, that Vista is a reliable system for, for EHR to keep using for the indefinite future here. What is your position on Vista? If Cerner does not meet and set goals and then meet those goals, then my suggestion is is we go back to Vista. Vista was working. Were there are things that we would like to see to move forward? Sure. But let's work with them and try to figure this out. Because remember, this has been through two administrations now that they're trying to turn up first, as I said, the Cerner, then bought out by Oracle. And Oracle made us all kinds of promises. They sat in my office and told me how great it was going to be. And just so you know, Congressman Rosendale was listening to that as well. And uh, they made these great promises. Those great promises haven't come to fruition. This, look. People were receiving their health care, and they met all those things that I just listed off. They were safe. Their records were kept. They knew they were going to get their prescriptions. They knew they were going to get their appointments. They knew all of this. The problem is, is that there's a whole bunch of people say, well, we need to move forward, and that's so that we can move into the future. And I understand that. But if you're moving into the future just to be moving into the future and you're endangering lives to do it, that's not a very wise way to go. So if we need to go back to the old system and then rethink this and have the VA rethink this, then that's what we need to do. We keep rolling forward with every place that they've turned it up. And what's really really wild is, remember, it's only five places that we've turned up and all five have been terrible. I've been in Congress nine years. This is over the last five years. This has been the biggest problem every day, every day. Even the people come up to me and mention the name Cerner, and they don't even understand how it's, it, it, it's like a cuss word to me. Wow. Yeah, and then I guess the other element of this, too, is just in terms of VA employees feeling comfortable with the system, it seems like the metrics that we are looking at is that they are consistently not comfortable with the Oracle Cerner EHR. It requires them to spend too much time at their computer and not the time doing their job, which is taking care of the patient. And I think sometimes with Cerner, what we've got is you've got a computer company that wants to do something in the medical field, and maybe it'd be better if you had medical people seeing what they can do to make the computer work for them instead of making the medical field work for Cerner. And that's the problem that ends up happening in each one of these facilities. The morale at these locations 
goes into the gutter just as quick as you turn it up. You know, that's one thing is one of the checks the VA does on the quality of the VA is communicating with their own employees on how well they feel about the job that they're doing. And when you look at these five facilities, Cerner's put in place, and you know, what's really wild is early on when we would go in, the administration there, I think, was kind of told, tell them it's okay, tell them we'll get through it. The last couple places we've gone to, the, the administration just goes, this is junk. It, it, it is trash. It doesn't work. It's causing us trouble. And so it, it's not only the frontline worker, not only the doctor, it's the people that are over them trying to keep a good operation going of their medical facility. And when that is also what we do in the VA, as big as a medical system as it is, that you check and say, okay, what's the quality of the facility? Well, a lot of the quality of the facility is judged based on what the employees feel is happening. So this, this ruins that. Republican Congressman Mike Bost, chairman of the House VA Committee, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the U.S. Agency for International Development revamps the way it's engaging overseas in development partners. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The U.S. Agency for International Development does all of its work overseas. It engages with local grantees or contractors to do the work in a particular country. Now USAID is launching a new strategy for what it calls A&A, Acquisition and Assistance. For details, we turn to its Deputy Administrator for Management and Resources, Paloma Adams-Allen. Ms. Adams-Allen, good to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. So there is an acquisition and assistance strategy. Tell us about this. What is it that you need to update and give us an overall view of what this strategy actually looks like? It seems central to everything USAID does. Thank you. It indeed is central to everything that we do. USAID routinely launches strategies, strategies for improving how we help partners around the world, strategies to mitigate and adapt to climate change, to promote equity and equality, strategies for building a more diverse and equitable workforce. So strategies guide everything that we do. And each of these strategies envisions a USAID that partners more directly with local actors and opens up the agency to more partners in the United States as well. And so we want to move beyond not just where we work and who we work with, but the strategy outlines how we work. And that is really a major part. It is guidance for how we're going to work into the future to deliver on our life-saving mission. So assistance ties directly to acquisition because you have to acquire the means locally to do the assistance. Precisely. So acquisition is about purchasing the goods and services needed. It might be food that you need to support people who are suffering in Turkey and Syria following the earthquakes. It might be tents. It might be beds. It might be services and goods that we need here for our staff and for our teams while assistance is a funding that you provide to the organizations who work with us to run programs to respond to humanitarian crises, et cetera. So we need both sides. And these are just the tools that we use to get the resources that we get from Congress to deliver on our mission. Now, the agency has been doing this for a long time. So tell us what is the impetus for updating the ANA strategy? This is our second ANA strategy, I understand, in many decades. And the last one was drafted in 2018. And it was just a different time. We really needed a new strategy to think about how are we going to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic and the impacts, economic, social, public health impacts. 
we also had, you know, the, the strategy includes a big focus on bolstering USAID's a workforce. Those are the people who are responsible for managing these resources and making sure that we are using them responsibly. Partners are using the resources responsibly. So the strategy also looks at bolstering that workforce that had really dwindled because of hiring freezes and other things. And finally, the Biden administration came in with a focus on empowering the federal workforce writ large, making sure that the assistance that we provide is better localized, i.e. we're working with more local organizations and directly with them. And so the strategy looks at what did we need to do to reduce barriers to local organizations working more with us, or just to have a broader partner base overall. So reducing bureaucracy, slashing administrative burdens, and opening up the agency to a wider cross-section of partners. I mean, it sounds like a big challenge there then would be to make sure that you maintain accountability over those local operators because they're in all sorts of nations and all sorts of places that aren't exactly the same as doing business with well-known companies in the United States. Indeed. I mean, I will say just to be clear, more than 80 percent of our funding goes to U.S. organizations. So we would be taught we're talking about just increasing the amount that goes to local organizations. But without question, one of the reasons that we really need to bolster the workforce is that they are stretched thin. These are the members of our workforce who make sure that projects are designed appropriately, that they're funded appropriately, that our resources are used appropriately. And I will give you a stat that will be a little bit shocking, but you know, on average, a contracting officer in USAID is responsible for obligating about $100 million. That is compared to, say, approximately $11 million per contracting officer, say, at the Department of Defense. So if your teams are that stretched, there's a lot of pressure on them to make sure that there's also proper oversight. So truly bolstering the workforce. And then we are looking at, you know, it can feel like bureaucracy is better oversight, but not necessarily. So how to streamline how we work so that we free up everybody's time to do better oversight. And what would some examples of streamlining mechanisms be, do you think? Well, there are a couple that we're kicking off right now. And in fact, I will say, while we've just launched the strategy, we have been doing <laughs> a lot of this work. And so it includes, I'll tell you two things that we're doing. One is to allow local organizations to actually be able to even apply for funding at USAID. We are allowing them to submit concept papers as opposed to a 100-page proposal, right? Our contracting officers would have to go through you know, 50 to 100-page proposal. Now they can look at a five-page proposal and decide whether this makes sense for us. They can also submit them in their local languages, and we're putting in place translation to make sure that they can submit and we can review those documents appropriately. So that just reduces the burden on the workforce. We have launched, crucially, a new platform called Work With USAID, and that is designed to, frankly, acknowledge that those who know how to work with us have a leg up because they know how to navigate the processes. And so Work With USAID opens up the door for any organization to register with USAID to learn about how to partner with us, to make sure that they have access to all of our training sessions, all of our outreach. So all of these are intended to reduce bureaucracy, reduce pressure on our teams, and make sure that they have more time and there are less burdens on them. We also want to reduce the burdens on our current partners and potential partners who really, I think, rightfully complain that our systems are creaky and that our bureaucracy is heavy and it makes it hard for them to be responsive and to act as quickly as they need to in moments of crisis. 
We're speaking with Paloma Adams-Allen. She's Deputy Administrator for Management and Resources at the U.S. Agency for International Development. And I would think that the degree of simplification of the application must also depend in some part on what it is you're buying, say if you're buying food supplies versus engineering services for a new water station somewhere. One's way more complex and prone to problems than the other. So is that kind of calibration built into the new strategy also? I would hope so. I will say in general, in cases of sort of humanitarian assistance, we really surge as much support as possible to the bureaus that are responsible for getting help to folks. And so one is just to have more streamlined processes in those cases, but also to make sure that the minute the earthquake hit, for instance, in Syria or Turkey, we start scanning what partners do we have, what partners do we need to get assistance as quickly as possible. And our contracting officers, I have one instance that I'm thinking of right now, the White Helmets, a local Syrian organization, and it's emergency response organization that operates in the areas that were impacted. And we immediately saw that we needed to be able to work with them quickly to get them resources, to purchase ambulances, you know, to get support to folks, for instance. And so we acted in two days and something that would have taken us on average about 40 days to stand up a project with them to get the resources they needed. And they saved, we were able to save over 2,000 people. So we do calibrate depending on the nature of the emergency. But, you know, I would love to say that it is easier to fund a small project than a large project or large procurement versus small procurement. But in some cases, I don't know that our systems were that flexible. So that's something that we're really trying to do. Because the strategy does mention cultural shifts needed for engagement. And at least everywhere else, it's certainly in DOD that you mentioned, the contracting officer culture is a little stodgy. And so when you talk about culture change, do you mean not just for COs, but for other people within USAID? For both. I think some of it is contracting officers, which is making sure that they are comfortable being a part of the design process for projects as well as, you know, the sort of rigor that they bring to making sure that it's good design. So they need to understand the problem that we're trying to solve and be a part of the full process, which we don't always do very well. So that's one of the things that we're trying to push forward, which is we want to make sure that it's collaborative and that our ANA workforce is working very closely with our technical staff and with our colleagues overseas in the field and feel full ownership and understanding for the types of projects. And I think that streamlines the bureaucracy that ends up happening if they come in a little bit later in the process. But I think the big cultural shift is to think about, instead of sort of going toward default processes, always questioning it. Is this the fastest we could do this? Is this the most efficient way that we could do this? Are we being the most creative, like understanding how crucial this function of the ANA function is to USA being able to deliver on any part of its mission. Without this function working, we cannot do anything that we are asked to do by Congress or by our president or on behalf of the American people. And the new strategy has three basic objectives, workforce enabled, equipped and empowered, streamlined and effective ANA integrated throughout the agency's development approach, more diverse set of partners. Do you have timelines and metrics for these objectives? Well, we definitely have timelines. This strategy is a five-year strategy. And as I said, we have actually started implementing components of it. And one of the big things we've started implementing is on the workforce side, which is we are surging as much of new positions as we can to grow the contracting officer particular backstop. We are also looking at short-term hiring mechanisms to help, as I said, in those surge moments. So we have started a lot of that. Staffing is challenging. That depends on when we get resources from Congress and how. 
but our goal is to continue to grow that backstop in particular. So I would just say that has started. There is an implementation plan that we have shared with partners and everybody to give us feedback essentially. And you know that includes a range of milestones for how we plan to hit all of these objectives and when we think we will be able to hit those objectives. I feel a sense of urgency, so I want us to get to all of it in a year, but it is a five-year strategy. Paloma Adams-Allen is Deputy Administrator for Development and Resources at the U.S. Agency for International Development. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having us. So grateful for the time. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the ANA strategy at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, how contractors can develop a better nose for where the money is. But first, there's a quick way to settle EEO disputes, but few agencies try it. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. Equal employment opportunity disputes still occur in federal agencies. People feel wrongly discriminated against, or they really are discriminated against for the wrong reasons. Now the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission has fresh advice on ways to settle EEO complaints without expensive and long litigation. We get more now from the Assistant Director of the EEO's Office of Federal Operations, Virginia Andreu. Ms. Andreu, good to have you back. Good morning, Tom. Happy to be here. You're offering agencies or reissuing advice for a mechanism other than litigation that goes back almost a quarter century until a statutory change in 1999 established the idea of an offer of resolution instead of litigation. So until 99, it was pretty hard to get a offer of resolution through the EEOC because often it didn't have the relief factors that would make true resolution, correct? Yes. And so since 99, offers of resolution have had to have restitution and all of the things that maybe would be granted by the EEOC or a judge instead. Yes. So the question is, what's in the agency's incentive to offer full restitution and full resolution if they are the, in effect, defendant in the first place? Why would they want to do that? Agencies have all the time in the world to litigate. Well, the offer of resolution is a settlement mechanism. And like any other settlement mechanism, an offer of resolution usually costs less to the agency, the use of fewer resources than the traditional administrative or adjudicative process. Particularly, you know, the agency doesn't have to go to a hearing, like a hearing um, record, a witness. The early solution to complain through an offer of resolution can conserve the agency's resource and make more of these resources available for mission-related programs and activities. Also, might reduce the agency case law. Because if you know that you can settle a case, why not go and settle the case? And through, you know, all this time, as you also know, the complaint process is a very long process. And, you know, you can avoid, as I, as I mentioned earlier, a court reported expert witness cost. In addition, you have to think about the morale. Complaint and morale can be enhanced like your employees when the agency management is viewed as an open-minded and cooperative in seeking to resolve disputes through settlement mechanisms. And also, it's a benefit for complainants because also saves time and expense related to the complaint process. And complainants can receive the appropriate remedies faster if the resolution is achieved at the end of the administrative process. And only, you know, only they're going to receive something if there's a finding. 
with the offer of resolution, they're going to receive something faster and they don't have to go through all the complicated and, and, you know, exhaustive process. Sure. So give us an example. What would be the elements in an offer of resolution that should be acceptable to both sides and to the EEOC? For example, suppose someone says, I was discriminated against because I'm female or because I'm Asian or whatever the case might be. That's the dispute. How can the agency make that right to everybody's satisfaction? What goes into that offer? Well, the offer of resolution, for example, it should be in writing. Uh, should include and explain all the possible consequences of failing to accept the offer. To be effective, must include, of course, the attorney fees, costs, and must be specified any non-monetary relief. Following your example, I think will depend on what's kind of the issue, no more what is the basis. But let's, for example, say that the issue was female because was not selected for a position or was not promoted. An offer of resolution in that particular case, it will include, for example, the agency must offer complainant that they're going to place back to the position, like it was not promotion. They're going to give the promotion with all the back pay, retroactive pay, uh, you know, all the, if there was an intervening constructive step increase during that time that she missed, they have to provide them. The, in the offer of resolution also can provide for, like, they will provide training to all the management included that they're going to post the violation of notification in the agency and in the website. You know, it's basically everything that complainant will receive if she prevails in the case, the agency must offer to be an effective offer of resolution. You're reissuing this guidance now because in the view of the EEOC, agencies simply aren't using this pathway to resolution enough? The the reality is, like, if I see, you know, we we are looking at at least the last five years, we only have, like, five kind of appeals bringing this issue. However, if the case is resolved before, you know, between the agency and the complainant, the case most of the time will not come to us on appeal. So it's hard for us to see how many really are going or using the offer of resolution. So they're only going to come to us when the agency failed to comply and complain and come to us asking for us to enforce the agreement. So we only have five in the last years, but that doesn't mean that the agency are not using a lot. However, we've been able to identify that settlement agreement is the preferred method of settlement that the agencies use and complain on because and more flexibility. Like a settlement agreement, the parties can agree, and one both agree with the something, it can be enforceable. Uh, it's more like flexible. They don't have to be in a specific time of the process. For example, the offer of resolution, if the person doesn't have an attorney, they only can offer when the case is assigned to an EOC administrative judge. If the person have an attorney, can be at any time, but 30 days before the hearing. So the offer of resolution have a very specific time frame and a specific time in the process need to be very specified. So settlement agreements are more flexible. As you know, the settlement agreement can offer at any time during the process can be not that specific. So that's the agencies and complainants, I think they go more with the settlement agreement than the offer of resolution. And since 1999, when this was all revised, I mean, this is a hugely process-driven situation that you've got here with EEOC. Timelines, rules, and deadlines. You mentioned five or six different statutes and regulations. There's a whole new generation of EEO officers. Sounds like there could be a special training course in simply how to do offers of resolution. 
Yeah, that's what we start, um, and we published last two weeks ago, a new article in our website, eoc.gov, under a resource that talk all about offers resolution. So we start to, you know, uh, at least make agencies and complainants aware of this settlement mechanism. And of course, if the agency have more questions or require more training, they always can contact us and they always can send us an email to the federal sector EO at EOC.gov. Virginia Andreu is assistant director of the Federal Special Operations Division at the EEOC. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information, including that article, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, how contractors can develop a better nose for where the money is. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. It's been noisy on Capitol Hill these couple of weeks with all of the hearings, but contractors who listen closely will hear the sounds of opportunity as agencies discuss their spending plans for 2024 with more on how to sharpen your hunting skills. Federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. And I guess uh, people should know what to listen for and where to look for clues to spending in 2024. Tom, the action right now is in the House and Senate appropriations committees as they go through their annual ritual of hearing from cabinet secretaries and other senior executive branch officials talking about the president's FY24 budget request. And while some people have claimed that that request is dead on arrival, the fact is, Tom, there's going to be a lot of that's in that budget request that makes its way through either in part or in whole at the end of the congressional appropriations process. So if you're a government contractor, this is a great time to pay attention to what is happening up on Capitol Hill. Listen to what it is the cabinet secretaries say, not just in their prepared remarks, but in the questions and answers they uh, have with members of the appropriations panels. Also, I think it's important to hear just what's on the mind of the appropriators, They're going to have an impact on how legislation is formed, Tom, that's going to shape the way the money is spent in the next fiscal year. So if you're paying attention right now to both what the executive branch is saying and the questions that congressmen and senators are asking, as a contractor, you're going to begin to get a better idea of what your following year could look like. Yes, and besides just simply learning the specific programs and spending lines that are contemplated by the agencies or by Congress, you can also get a sense of the tone of what's driving the agency, and that can inform your business development so that you can talk the language to an agency that it wants to hear. Tom, you're absolutely right. Talking the language couldn't really be more important for a government contractor. This is where we get issues today, like we're talking about in the in the IT world, zero trust and cybersecurity. And you know, years ago, it was cloud and data storage and things of that nature. So the buzzwords change over time. And right now is a good way to find out what your customer agency buzzwords, what their emphases are. And one of them is going to be customer experience, uh, but there will be others. So, you know, if you're looking at what the agencies are saying on the Hill, you don't even have to read all the testimony. Look at the summaries, the press releases, uh, and again, the questions and answers after the testimony is done. I think you can get a lot of clues about uh, how you can shape your message 
how you can fine tune your sales approach and where the opportunities are going to be next year. And we should also point out, as you are pointing out, that here we are in just about the doorstep of April, and the fiscal year 2023 is already shifting to cleanup from acquisition <laughs> of opportunities at this point. Right. Surprise. We're just about a quarter three, and I think that means a couple of things for government contractors. One of the first things it means, Tom, is that the window for having those new meet-and-greet meetings is going to start to come to a close. Uh, they never really, It never really stops, but it becomes more difficult to get meet-and-greet meetings from, say, about mid-June on. Uh, the time to have those, those new background discussions, is at the beginning of the year up until right about now. So if you don't have those meet-and-greet meetings with new prospects on the calendar, you have a very short period of time to do that. So I recommend that you get that done now because in about five or six weeks, you're probably not going to be able to do that anymore for this year. We're speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And there's another phenomenon, and that is that because the greater economy outside of the federal market is pretty rough right now, and agencies don't know what's going to happen with monetary policy and so forth. Borrowing is getting difficult. There's a bank crisis that nobody can seem to quite tamp down to zero. And so that affects how companies that have large commercial market components, sometimes when they cut back the marketing and development efforts commercially, federal gets sort of swept into that general tightening. And that can be a real mistake, can't it, with respect to getting revenue for your company? Uh, it really can be. Yeah, it's one of the things that I talk about with companies all the time is that uh, if you're out of sight, you're out of mind, Tom. Uh, you can have the greatest solution that you want, but if people don't know about it or they haven't heard about it lately, chances are they've heard about a lot of other things since you last went to talk to them. Now is the time to coordinate your marketing and sales message. Make sure that uh, people know about your solutions and not just how about, about the solutions themselves, but how they meet an agency's specific needs, Tom. I am amazed constantly by the number of companies that go to the federal market who try to do uh, marketing on a shoestring or really don't do much at all and then are surprised that they don't get the results they were looking at. I'm not a big believer in spending tons of money, but you, sometimes you do have to spend a little bit of money to make a lot more money, and that's what I'm talking about. And switching to the contractor side here, you have noted the Office of Strategic Capital set up by the Defense Department. I wanted to discuss that with you because it's one of these trending ways that contractors, especially small business, can get access to capital and also access to federal contracts outside of the regular FAR and all of that entailment. Right, Tom, this is the Small Business Investment Company, and as you mentioned, it's being run by the Department of Defense's Office of Strategic Capital. One of the things that really caught my attention about this project is that it's another source of funding for small businesses that's independent of the annual appropriations process. How many times have we talked about projects that can't be started at the beginning of a fiscal year because the government is operating under a continuing resolution? It happens every year. And one of the things I talk to companies about is, well, you have to look for non-appropriated funds so that you can at least get something started. Capital funds are one way to do that. 
So this small business investment company operated out of DOD and coordination with Small Business Administration could be another channel for small businesses to explore that's independent of that regular appropriations process, particularly if you're a small business that has a really innovative product. Maybe it's not in full production right now, but it's a way for small businesses to participate in the market that wasn't really there before. And I think that anytime you have an opportunity to look at a capital fund or a non-appropriated fund source, it's really worth exploring. And it also might be advantageous relative to the regular small business contracting that happens in the standard acquisition cycle because there are picking and choosings going on right now among various types of small businesses. And if you're not one of the favored classes, even under the general area of small business, this also might be an enhanced opportunity. Tom, I think that's exactly right. I mean, so often there's a temptation to look at small businesses as a monolithic entity. But right now, we're really seeing that there are different types of small businesses that that point is really being driven home. So if you're not one of the small business socioeconomic groups that's currently in political favor, you have an opportunity to go somewhere uh, that maybe, you know, go to the outside lane and still get to the finish line. And this could be the outside lane for some of the small businesses. And you really want to be aware as a small business that, you know, I would call it sometimes the flavor of the month. Uh, we had a flavor of the month in small business contracting a couple of years ago. Now there's a different flavor of the month. So if you're not it, you have to work a little bit harder and look a little bit deeper in order to get business done. Above all, don't try to be plain vanilla. Nah, that's exactly right. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Thanks so much. Tom, I thank you, and I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The General Services Administration is facing a crisis of confidence. The third scathing Inspector General report since 2016 has reinforced how headquarters can't make the technology transformation service play by the government's rules. In his weekly reporter's notebook, Federal News Network's executive editor Jason Miller covers why this is leading agency chief information officers and other tech executives to question whether GSA as a whole can be trusted. Jason joins me now with the latest. And Jason, let's start with that IG report a couple of weeks ago about login.gov, of all things. Tom, this was the third report since 2016 from around the Technology Transformation Service and really their inability to play by the quote-unquote rules of the government. In this one, the most recent one back from earlier in March, basically what the IG found was over the last four years, the folks that ran login.gov were misleading the government, misleading their customers across the government about how they met certain NIST standards for identity proofing, something called IAL2. Now, long story short, Tom, is is the, the fact is that they couldn't meet it is, is less of a big deal than they have mis- misled the government and misled their customers for so long. And in fact, Tom, I have a, copies of, of five or six different interagency 
agreements between login.gov and agency customers, uh, the Agriculture Department, the Labor Department, SBA, OPM, the Rural Road Retirement Board, VA, that all say the same thing. Hey, we meet this standard that NIST put out there for identity proofing, and in fact, they didn't. And, and that is causing a huge kind of wave of problems. Not that they didn't meet the specific standard, let me be clear about this, but because they were misled, in some cases, you know, people would contend lied over the last four years to their agency customers, Tom. And, and again, that goes back to a long-standing problem of, of, for the Technology Transformation Service, TTS. Yeah, so you're reporting that this report is creating a crisis of confidence with GSA and the TTS as a whole? I've spoken to five federal technology executives, CIOs and other types. I've talked to three formers. I've talked to folks in industry. Across the board, everyone says... TTS has been a problem since the start. They continue to be a problem. This IG report just kind of adds another layer of that problem. And I think what's happening is this is also now being shed into the General Services Administration more broadly and really reflecting badly on GSA, specifically Dave Shive, the CIO at GSA, who signed off on a lot of these authorizations that said they did indeed meet this IL-2 or the identity proofing requirement under NIST. And now folks, again, CIOs and other types are saying, well, if they lied about this, what else did they potentially mislead us about? What else did they not, were not honest with us about? And, and again, Tom, I guess this creates a crisis in confidence because people for a long time have looked at GSA and said, I want to work with GSA. I want to bring my acquisition to them. I want to bring uh, lean on them for help. And now they're saying, maybe I don't want to do this. Maybe I, I'm, I'm concerned about what they're doing. What else is under the covers? Uh, what other transparency can they show me? And, and I, think, I think that's a big concern. Tom, I just want to refer back to, to something that happened in the mid-2000s. When you and I were working in a, in a previous job, we, we, we had this story about GSA parking money. This is the idea of you know an agency having year-end money, not be able to spend it. They give it to GSA, and GSA puts it on, quote-unquote, contract. And this was a big problem in the 2000s. And what I'm seeing and what I'm being told from many sources is this TTS problem, this login.gov problem, is as bad as that parking money problem was back in the mid-2000s when they, they saw their assisted acquisition service business drop from about $7 billion then to $3 billion. Uh, so, so I think it's, it's the same concern. There's, there's a whole – the trust has been frayed is what I, a phrase someone told me. Well, that's tough for a fee-for-service agency on the one side. And it's also tough for agencies that might be using login.gov that they can't tell their constituents that the login process is secure. And that's kind of one of the heart of the big cybersecurity issues of the era, you might say. So what is GSA, if anything, doing now to try to get past this or repair the confidence? There's two things that GSA is trying to do. First, they, obviously, we have new leadership involved there. You have a new head of TTS, Ann Lewis. You have a Federal Acquisition Service, Sonny Hashmi. Neither of them were really involved in this scandalous event, right, this this misleading of agencies over the last four years. It happened really during the Trump administration. It happened during uh, the, the very beginnings of the of the Biden administration. In fact, GSA were the ones that brought this issue to the IG and asked for them to look into it back in February of 2022. But that still doesn't necessarily repair everything. They're also going on a, and I'll call this Tom in quotes here, an apology tour of sorts. Uh, I've had sources tell me that the Sonny Hashmi and Ann Lewis went before the Technology Modernization Fund board just on March 20th to kind of talk about what they did wrong and, and how they're fixing it and, and how they're going forward to be better. If you remember, Tom, login.gov received the largest award under the TMF, $187 million in September 2021. And, and that 
award is really being called into question by a lot of people. Well, if they lied to the board and they lied to their customers, who else, did, you know, what else is going on here? And why didn't the board come a little harder at them and understand what the, all the issues were? So I think that was one step. I also have talked to folks around the CIO Council, the Chief Information Security Officers Council, and they've said that while they have not had a meeting yet, they do expect login.gov to come up during their meetings, uh, the upcoming meetings in April. And, and then finally, Tom, obviously GSA is doing some other things. They know they need to repair it. I talked to Claire Monterana, the federal CIO, and, and she says, well, I have full confidence in login.gov, but yes, uh, I think uh, TTS needs to rebuild their trust, the trust in login.gov. And even she said as a board there, what she calls fully interrogating the process that we went through for the investment, making sure we're looking back on those milestones and really holding people accountable. So there's a lot of kind of efforts going on to ensure that folks can't believe that they can trust login going forward. And one thing that's very important, Tom, as well to, to highlight, just because login did not meet this NIST standard, which is around identity proofing, it doesn't mean they were not secure. This is not a matter of insecurity or a cybersecurity problem. It's a matter of honesty and transparency. And I think that's really why it's causing this crisis in confidence. Let me ask you this. When you say that GSA lied to these agencies about it, could they have just simply mistakenly thought it was compliant within this standard, but it wasn't, and they somebody pointed it out to them? Or did they know it was not compliant and nevertheless say it was? They knew it was not compliant and nevertheless said it was. Okay. Uh, they kept trying to get compliant, and they, uh, you know, there's there's Slack messages and other messages in the IG report that kind of admits to them that said, "Uh oh, we we're going to be in trouble." Uh, so so I think uh, it, they could have come back and said, "Hey, we thought we could reach this this standard, we couldn't, and here's what we're doing instead." They could have done that a year into it, a two years into it, but they never did. And I think that's the other point. They let, they let this go on for four years. Yeah, classic issue there. So this IG report also has Congress sniffing around, too. It, it absolutely does. And, Tom, there's a hearing coming up Wednesday, tomorrow, or before the House Oversight and Accountability Subcommittee on Government Operations and, and, the, and the Federal Workforce. And this hearing is going to feature Sonny Hashmi, uh, Carol Ochoa from the GSA Inspector General's Office, and Jim St. Pierre from NIST. And the concern here, according to a spokesperson from the committee, says, you know, they want to really look at why did GSA leaders didn't exercise adequate oversight over TTS? And, Tom, that's a common question I hear from a lot of people across the government. Why can't you control the people at TTS? And a lot of CIOs are very frustrated that GSA can't do that. And then they're also looking at should login.gov remain a central component of the Biden administration's anti-fraud efforts? I think those are two fair questions about what's going on with login.gov. So I think that's one thing that's happening. I also know the Senate Homeland Security Governmental Affairs Committee has met with uh, GSA Administrator Robin Carnahan to ask about login.gov and hear what's going on there. An aide for Senator Gary Peters, the chairman of that committee, told me that they want to uh, improve the accountability and transparency of login.gov and, and rebuild some of that trust in the program. So, again, the Senate also is very focused on what's going on with GSA. But this won't be Robin Carnahan's bathtub with wine glasses in Las Vegas moment, will it? Tom, I don't think so because it has not come there was no cybersecurity breach. If they would have found out that they promised they were doing identity vetting and something bad would have happened, or, you know, take it to the nth degree and this did not happen, but let's say it's a terrorist, uh, some sort of terrorist attack or something like that, Tom, then I think that would be the downfall. But this is just a, a and remember, Robin Carnahan also came in after this had been happening for, for two and a half, almost three years. So, she, you know, to hold her accountable. So did Martha Johnson. Exactly. Well, but you got to act quickly enough. And I think that's why this tags back to that parking of money in the 2000s. 
how will Robin Carnahan, who was a member of 18F, and that also came out as I talked to some other sources in government as a concern, how will she react to this? Will she you know, kind of have that top-down approach saying, we will fix this, we will get better, we will be more transparent, or will she leave it to Sonny Hashmi, who's quite capable, and Ann Lewis, who's fairly new to government? I think that's a big question that I think also wants to be answered by what people want answered by by across the board. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And check out his reporter's notebook now at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, U.S. aid revamps the way it engages with overseas development partners. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 